0: Now I understand that in your confessional reading, you've come to Lord's Day 22, so please turn there with me now. Lord's Day 22, page 536 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 22 marks the end of the catechism's instruction on the content of our Christian faith, summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Now, appropriately, the end deals with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Topics that we as Christians typically don't spend enough time thinking about. So let's read Lord's Day 22. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. After the sermon, we will sing our Amen song of Psalm 130, stanza four. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, this time of year is the beginning of a new season. The summer is beginning Catechism classes are done for the year. Spring is pretty much over. Soon the children will be out of school. They will rejoice and their parents may cringe a little. Now at the beginning of the new, we reflect on what came before. We reflect on the previous summer. We think about how this one might compare. Now last summer was different than most in recent memory. But I trust that many of you like in my home congregation, we're still able to get away, whether for a few weeks of camping or cottaging, an afternoon hiking, spending time on the beach, enjoying the wonderful gardens that so many of you have in your backyards. And this last summer, I was able to take some time off too, as you may or may not know. I hope to do much the same again this year. I got to enjoy this beautiful province, spending time hiking, camping, surfing and kayaking. I got to enjoy forests, oceans, and then, of course, the beach. And there's a certain beach culture that I experienced, especially present on the island. My surfing teacher, Greg, told me about it. He works at the surfing school, and he said that he longs for his days off when all he does is surf all day, eat amazing fast food, fall asleep on the beach, and to do it all again whenever he wakes up. And he looked at me and he laughed and said, that's not too different from when I'm working. This is my life. And so I invite you to close your eyes for a second and imagine Greg's life. Imagine that his life was your life. I wonder if your first reaction is the same as mine. For a second, I envied him. A life like Greg's is so simple, so full of pleasure, so absent of responsibility. But Greg's life, no matter how amazing it seems for him right now, is a very basic and simple life. It's filled with basic and simple pleasures, surfing and snacking and sleeping. These are things that can make you happy, but deep-seated joy? Not so much. And we have to change the way of looking at our lives, you and I. Because though most of us don't live exactly like Greg does, if we're honest with ourselves, we're also focused far too much on the things of this world. We're focused on our houses, on our salaries, having an amazing dinner, having fun. That's the way the average Christian looks at life. And it isn't radically different from how secular people look at it. Most of us have lost the defining feature of the Christian life. Our joy and excitement and longing for heaven. We live our lives focused on worldly things. And heaven is a brief afterthought. God is someone that we love, but from a distance. We're not filled with his passionate, all-consuming love for our Creator and Saviour. We don't go to sleep dreaming of heaven, longing for the day when all of this will be made new, when heaven and earth will be made one. Instead, our Christian lives they seem so monotonous, day after day after day. Reading your bible, praying for strength to make it through another day of work, another day of monotony. But that's not what the Christian life is meant to be. That's not what eternal life is all about. Because, you know, we already have a foretaste of what that life will be like. We already feel in our hearts the beginning of eternal joy. At least, we can. This is what the Catechism says that we should have. There's that option, but you and I, we need to wake up to it. Let us not slumber and sleep, but instead open our eyes to what the Christian life should be, here and now, and the glorious life that it will be one day. I therefore preach to you the exciting, heart-pounding, truly awesome gospel of Jesus Christ under the following theme and points. I believe in the Christian life of hope. We'll look at hope in two points. Our hope of an empty tomb and our hope of eternal joy. I believe in the Christian life of hope. Now, I'm sure here in Pathway, or in the church you were in before Pathway was instituted, you've heard the word hope from the pulpit more than a few times. But let me remind you of what hope actually means. Because the world uses hope in a very different way than the church uses hope. Earthly hope is like how surfer Greg hopes for good waves. Greg's hope is exactly the same as a wish. He hopes, he wishes, every day that there would be good waves. Sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. The strength of Greg's hope is completely dependent on the strength of his desire. Strength of his hope, strength of his desire. But heavenly hope, the way that the church should hope, this is altogether different. For the Christian, hope isn't just a wish. It is a sure and confident expectation. A sure and confident expectation that our God will fulfill his promises. The strength, of Bibl- the strength of biblical hope is found in God's faithfulness. As Christians, we must live a life of hope. We heard that in our call to worship this afternoon. We wait with eager longing. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. For in this hope, we are saved. Hope is fundamental to the Christian life. But how many of us Christians feel hopeless? How many of us feel hopeless at times? When we look out to the world, and there seems to be no end in sight to the effects of COVID, the effects on travel, the effects on the economy, the effects on how we can meet together as the church, And even in the differences of opinion of how we should react, what's common, what's the same across all of these differences is the sense of hopelessness. For those who fear the virus, there isn't much hope as we look now to the various strains, some of which seem to affect young people more and more seriously. For those who think that the reaction of the government is out of proportion We have little hope that the government will now go back on and relax on restrictions and admit that they were overstepping. Whatever side you're on, hope is forlorn. But that's exactly why we need hope. And our God, He gives us hope in His Word. Look at the hope that dominated the life of the Apostle Paul. We heard the following in our reading this afternoon. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul, he's sure that the troubles right now will give way to something better. They'll give way to something glorious. These troubles, he calls them a light and momentary affliction. So what was Paul actually referring to here? Was his light and momentary affliction just a stone in his sandal? The pain of hunger in his belly sometimes? Was it something different? Well, what Paul calls a light momentary affliction, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, is not the same as we would call a light and momentary affliction. Because as he wrote these words, the cruelest emperor ever to rule was on the throne. Emperor Nero, the man who started the killing of Christians for sport, forcing them to fight gladiators in the arena, forcing them to be torn to bits by wild animals. Paul himself would be killed at the command of Nero a few years later. Now we know that Paul was under house arrest, likely not when he wrote 2 Corinthians, but by this time he had already been persecuted for his faith been thrown in jail, he had been whipped, he had been stoned by the people. And yet, Paul calls this a light and momentary affliction. And he does so because he's weighing it against something. He's weighing it against the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, beyond all comprehension. The Apostle Paul lived a life harder than most of us will ever have to live, And yet his joy was greater than ours. And so we ask, how? How is this possible? Well, it's possible because of one word. Four letters. Hope. Paul was not a slumbering Christian. In fact, his eyes were wide open. His eyes were open to the coming spiritual reality. A spiritual reality that isn't just for the future, but that is already all around us. Because this physical world, it's not everything. This physical life is not everything. The world will tell you that it is. The common refrain since before the days of Paul has been, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We're to squeeze every last drop of enjoyment out of this world because that's all that there is. But that's simply not true. And while this may seem like a romantic and exciting view, that life is more beautiful because it is short, what this lie actually does is instead it places this big sign up over the grave. This big sign up that says, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. Because for the world, the grave is seen as the end. Their grave, their tomb is their final resting place. It's a place where hope dies. But for the Christian, well, for the Christian, our hope is not for this life only. Our hope extends beyond the hospital bed. Our hope extends beyond the grave. Because we have hope in an empty tomb. And now when I say these words, empty tomb, your mind probably runs immediately to the story of Easter. When our Lord and Savior, he burst through the tomb, leaving it empty behind him, breaking the shackles of sin and death, rolling away the stone, that's good, should always think of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the empty tomb, it's not just a description of Resurrection Sunday, Not just a description of that day that changed everything all those years ago. But the empty tomb, it's also a description of each one of our graves. Let me explain. His empty tomb on Sunday necessarily means our empty tomb. Just as death could not hold him, so also can it not hold us. Our Lord's Day speaks of this beautifully. When it says, my soul, after this life, shall immediately be taken up to Christ my head. Now some of you, many of you probably have been to a graveyard. You've buried a loved one. But ask yourself, what did you actually bury that day? What's actually buried in the grave? Not your loved one just their remains. Because life has left them. The sparkle in their eye, the working of their brain and their heart. What you bury is not a full person. You can never bury the soul of a Christian because immediately, at the moment of death, their soul has left their body. Immediately be taken up to Christ. There's no break, there's no delay. Though some teach that there is. But there's no purgatory waiting for those whose sins have only been partially forgiven by Christ, that they need to pay for their own sins and be purified before they can enter heaven. This idea is not found in Scripture and does not treat the sacrifice of Christ on the cross with the reverence that it deserves. There is no purgatory, and there is no soul sleep either. Souls waiting in the ground, slumbering until Christ returns. No, our union with Christ in heaven is immediate and instantaneous. If Christ does not return in the next hundred years, then everyone here, you and me both, we will die. At least our earthly life will be over. Because we will seem to die, but we will not truly die. It may look like death, but it's not death. Not really, not truly Because true death is the death of the body and the soul. Body and soul forever apart from the God of life. But when believers die in the Lord, there isn't even a millisecond when you are out of fellowship with your God. Your soul immediately goes to be by the side of your Savior. This life on earth will become that life in heaven. There's no delay in between. Our souls will be immediately with our Savior. And our graves will be empty, in a sense. Because the grave of a Christian still contains a body. We know that. We've seen bodies in graves before. But the hope of the empty tomb isn't just a hope of a partially empty tomb. The hope of a tomb empty of a soul But there is, there will be, one day when all the tombs of Christians will be completely empty. Truly, completely empty. No soul, no body. Because the Catechism goes on. Lord's Day 22, it's not just about the soul, but it's also about the body. It says, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, that leaves the grave partially empty it continues also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body because our existence in heaven one day when everything is made new it's not going to be that of disembodied souls floating or flying around we know this because paul speaks to us about longing to put on our heavenly dwelling He says, we wish not to be unclothed, that is, free of a body and only a soul, but we wish to be further clothed, that is, with a heavenly body. And so, while every Christian who has died in the Lord already has an empty tomb, we hope and we pray and we long for the day when those empty tombs will be even emptier. When the earthly bodies, stained with sin, corrupted by weakness, they will be raised again and they will be transformed. When our souls will be clothed with a heavenly dwelling, a body like Christ's glorious body. You see, this is the hope that we have in Christ. This is our Christian hope. No matter our light and momentary affliction, earthly disease cannot touch your soul. Earthly sorrow cannot drag your soul away from Christ. Trauma and pain, though they seem to have a lot of sway here and now, ultimately they cannot stop your soul from being united with Christ. They can't stop your body from being raised and glorified, made imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so when we ask with the Catechism, what comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Well, our faces should light up with heavenly joy and hope because this comfort is the greatest comfort that anyone could ever experience. Because our God, He's not a God who goes halfway with anything. Not only is our soul washed clean by the blood of Christ through His death on the cross, but our souls have been given immortality by His resurrection. Our souls will... Res- our bodies will... Rather, will receive immortality when he returns. And then, with pure souls and incorruptible bodies, we will experience full, eternal joy throughout eternity. That's our second point. For so many of us, at least for me, this life feels like we're running on a treadmill continually working hard but getting nowhere, waiting for a payday that never seems to come. We know that as Christians we should be different, we should feel fulfillment, we should feel this joy. And the Catechism says that we should. Well, actually, the Catechism's a little stronger than that, isn't it? The Catechism assumes that we do. We read, Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, So, what is this joy that the catechism speaks of? And why don't we feel it? If I asked you how you feel most of the time, would your answer have anything to do with eternal joy? Probably not. Your answer, like my answer, it would probably revolve around work or family. And we'd say, we're busy. I have a physio appointment three times a week, got into a car accident, I'm fine, but I have a physio appointment and every time my physiotherapist, she asks me, how are you doing? Every single time I say, busy, busy, like always, and we laugh about it and she says, I'm busy too. We talk about our weeks. We say that we're busy, we say that we're stressed, that things aren't quite how we would like them to be, but next week. Next month, well, hopefully by then things will have fallen into place, and then things will be okay. But that doesn't come, does it? Things don't fall into place. There's always something there. And so when there's a sermon that challenges you to be more joyful, this teaching is met with excuses. I'm too busy to be joyful. How can I be joyful when my family member is sick in the hospital? How can I be joyful when I'm dealing with chronic pain? How can I be joyful when I suffer with anxiety and depression? And the problem with these excuses, excuses that I make too, by the way, the real problem is that we've confused joy for happiness. The excuses should really be, how can I I be happy when I'm this busy? when I'm running around from place to place, driving kids, picking up groceries, working 12-hour days, well, then that's a legitimate excuse. Being happy that you barely have time to take a breath, that's impossible. Being happy when you deal with physical or emotional trauma, telling yourself to smile through the pain and make it legitimate, well, that's not logical. And you're not called to that by God. You're not called to be happy all the time. But we are all called to be joyful. Because joy is not the same as happiness. It's just not. Happiness is something that comes to us from the outside circumstances. Happiness from worldly pleasures. We can be happy when the sky is blue and the sun is shining. We can be happy when things go right for us at work or school. When the waves are just right for surfing. Happiness is easy. But happiness is also temporary. Because just as easily as happiness comes into our lives, it can also leave again. You have a fight with your spouse. You yell at your kids. You get drenched in a sudden downpour. And your happiness is just gone. There are good days and there are bad days. Joy. Joy is deeper. Joy is harder to obtain, but joy is stable and secure. Because joy, it doesn't come from outside of ourselves. Instead, joy comes from within ourselves, and it's planted there from above. Joy, true joy, eternal joy, is what lets you be at peace, even when your heart is breaking. You can experience joy when a family member or a friend dies and goes to be with the Lord. You aren't happy about it. You may shed many tears. But even in those tears, you can have peace and joy deep within your heart. That crying, it doesn't go all the way down. You have that peace and you have that joy because you know that they've been promoted to glory. You know that they're freed from sin. You know that one day you will see them again. Joy is harder to get, but when you have it, it's there forever. And in this life, joy is far better than happiness. If you have to choose, choose joy. But there will be a day when we don't have to choose between the two. There will be a day when joy and happiness will go together. When they will be bound up as one. A day when the outside circumstances will match that inside joy. And this is the day that we're longing for. This is the day that the Catechism speaks of with these wonderful words. I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. A blessedness in which to praise God forever. What an amazing description. I'll ask you again, like I did at the start of the sermon, to close your eyes for a second and imagine this life. Imagine this perfect Blessedness. There are quite a few differences between this imagined life and surfer Greg's imagined life. First of all, you don't have Greg's life, and you never will. But this life, this life promised to us in our catechism, this life promised to us in the Word of God... We are sure and we are confident that this will be our experience one day. And we hope for it with the strength of Christian hope. This hope, this life, it's different than Greg's because it's real for us. And it's different because it's ultimately fulfilling. That life is forever. It's a life of eternal joy. And we can't really wrap our minds around the concept of eternity. We can't really picture how it will look. Will the streets really be made of gold? Will the gates really be pearls? Will we spend half our time on the new earth, half our time in the new heaven? We don't know. We don't know what's figurative language and what's literal language about these promises, but we know that they're true. And what we know for certain, with no figurative language here, no, no figures of speech, is that we will never be separated from God. Because the true joy of life everlasting, it's not found in those golden streets. It's not found in the strength of our new bodies. These things will be glorious and they will be wondrous, but they're simply gifts, our true joy isn't found in gifts, but rather in the giver himself. The true joy of heaven is that the dwelling place of God is with us once more. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. God himself will be with us as our God. Right now, right now on this earth, when our happiness is lacking because of the pain of sin, let it not take away our joy too. Let let us not rob ourselves of this hope that is ours. Because right now, we have a foretaste of that joy. We have a foretaste of the joy that is to come when we're singing God's praises in church, when we sing your favorite psalm or hymn and you're not distracted by anything else for that split second when your heart feels light as you read God's word and feel the Spirit move powerfully a tiny fraction of the joy that's set before us. And beloved congregation, let this foretaste awaken that hope in you. Don't be deaf to what is coming. Don't live a life focused on this world. But instead, let your eyes be heaven-focused. Because as Christians, we've been saved. We've been saved from sin and we've been saved for glory. Saved from sin and saved for glory. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, he endured the cross, he despised its shame because he was looking forward to the glory that was yet to come. His eyes were focused on God's glory. His eyes were focused on your salvation. The salvation that he was accomplishing at that very moment. So people of God, Share in the joy of your Savior. Share in the foretaste of the joy of your God. Wake up to the passionate, all-consuming love that our God has for us and that we should have for Him. Go to sleep dreaming of heaven, longing for the day when all of this will be made new. And above all, live lives of hope. Amen.